0: Good evening, and could I ask one, somebody that wants to be, uh, get a prophet's reward to get me a bottle of water, (laughs) not used though, (laughs) okay, (laughs) that's the way it's supposed to be, (laughs) actually you know, Um, in my podcast, if you could maybe cut the uh, monitors. Um, I just, I've been, you know, any of you that's been listening to it at all, I've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and I'm like at week 60-something, you know, and I'm only in chapter 11, so I'll be two years, two and a half, three years into it, and... uh, Having an awesome time. But, you know, I just did within the last couple of weeks in uh, Luke 11 where Jesus is teaching on prayer in the first 13 verses. um, And he brings out that parable of uh, a man that has a friend come visit him at an inopportune time at midnight. And he has no bread to put before him. And in that situation, that culture, it would be a disgrace not to take care of a guest. So you would bring the guest into your home. you treat him royally. In essence, you'd make sure you had food to set before him. And so the man came at a time when he was not being expected. And what happens? He, the man doesn't have any food to lay before his guests. So it says he goes to his neighbor and he knocks on his door. And uh, so uh, I couldn't actually find a title for, the, uh, for that parable, where most of the time... There's titles given to a parable, but that one I couldn't find, doing all kinds of looking commentaries and everything else. So I dubbed it the, uh, the relentless intercessor. But uh, what went on there, it, spe- it speaks, it uses a word there in the Greek on, that is translated persistent or in various ways like that. But it is so interesting because as you dig deeper into that word, it means shameless. And so you had the shameless intercessor. He didn't care what people thought. He didn't care what people had to say. He needed bread. He went to the door. He beat on that door and he was yelling and he was screaming and he was shouting, trying to wake the man inside and convince him inside. When he says, Go away, I'm asleep, my children are in bed, you know, leave me alone, I'll give you everything you want tomorrow. And he shamelessly was interceding, I must have bread. And uh, I think one of the things with intercession we have to understand, especially when we start letting the heart of God get a hold of us, is that we lay aside the foolishness of our pride, and that we are willing to even be fools for Christ in the place of prayer, that we will allow there to be the passion in our heart that will start coming out and saying, I've got to let something really grab hold of me and begin to burn inside of me. Well, for the last few weeks, four weeks, five weeks, something like that, we've been looking at the whole idea of prepare the way, and it uh, comes out of Isaiah 40 and uh, the prophecy is fulfilled where Jesus refers to it, um, or it's referred to in Luke chapter 3, uh, as it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. And we're going to come to the end of this today uh, with the final two points that I want to look at. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus. And Lord, we ask for your blessing on this word. And Lord, all these weeks that we've been looking at this. And Lord, I know up to this point, at least the last three weeks have been very much uh, the necessity of looking at our own lives. We have to tear down those mountains and fill in the valleys and, and deal with the crooked ways in our life and even the rough ways. And uh, Lord, there's a reason for it. And God, I pray as we look at the reason, we get to the purpose behind it all, that we would see the treasure and that we would understand what you're really wanting to do when you call us to, to this kind of life and this kind of repentance, Lord, that we would understand the beauty that comes out of it, what your plan really is. And so bless this word as we look at it in Jesus' name. And so we're going to look at the two points. One is at the beginning of the prophecy. The other is the final point of the prophecy. And the first one is make straight paths for him. And so everything that comes after this, you know, tearing down the mountains, filling in the valleys and so on, is all about making a straight path for him. And in the idea of what it would have been more literally then would be straight paths for the king to come to us. But when we make a straight path for the king to come to us, we've also made a straight path for us to go to the king. So it goes both ways. But it's this desire that we want the king. We want him to come. We want his nearness. We want to see him. We want him to sit in court. We want to come and bring our petitions to him and and for him to sit as judge to deal with these issues and to be our help and all these dynamics. So we want him to come. We want Him to come in who He is and His glory and the pomp and ceremony and power of all that He is. We want Him to come so we have done everything within our understanding, within our ability to prepare the way for Him. So we tore down those big mountains of sin. We filled in the valley of those depressions and all the other things that are these, these great problems in our life. Then we started dealing with the crooked ways and maybe we're dealing with some of the rough ways in our life. And, and so we've dealt with that, but we've always got to keep the priority. We've always got to keep the reason for all this. The prize is not repentance. Repentance is a gift to get to the prize. And it's to be used properly, not improperly. And so we have to understand its purpose. And so Sunday, when I preached, I, which would have been not last Sunday, obviously, Dr. Adam did, but the Sunday prior, I dealt with the purpose of man. Well, guess what these last two things we're going to look at here. Make straight paths for him. The purpose of man, to enjoy him forevermore. And the last one we'll look at is, is, to, uh, is so all mankind can see in his glory, so that we live for the glory of God, that everything we do is for the glory of God. So even within this prophecy is that very thought of, of the purpose of man, of what we're all about, what our reason for being is, why he created us, and then why he saved us. And then it's our responsibility to say, okay, if this is what my reason for being is, help me to begin to live it out. And so the ultimate purpose, I believe, what he's really trying to deal with here is that there would be revival. So all mankind can see his glory. And we'll touch on that in just a few minutes. Revival has to be something prepared for. It just doesn't happen. You understand? It just doesn't happen. Now, it may happen at a point in time after it's been prepared, and God may come, and the preparing may be, uh, have taken decades earlier, like the Browns revival. Yeah, they had, had prayer bands. I'll touch on a little bit of that there with the subjects of prayer and stuff like that, but when you get back into the history of that revival, there was all these grandmas in the 50s that were having these prayer meetings, crying out for revival, though they never saw it with their own eyes, they were preparing the way for a generation down the road that ultimately would experience it. And since prayer is timeless, the timelessness of their prayers was preparing the way that eventually when the time would be right, that the king would come. Now, I don't want to wait until another generation. All right? I want to believe now. I want to believe that he wants, that he wants to do it now. My heart aches for it. I mean, I was saved in revival. We are part of the Brownsville revival. We've seen outpourings in our own ministry, but yet I'm thirsty. I want to see a move of God. I want to enjoy Him in the atmosphere of His presence that we get a little taste of in worship. When we start really pressing in, we get a taste of it, but He wants to take it deeper. It's not about being experience seekers, but I'll tell you what, it is absolutely wonderful to experience God. And we shouldn't be afraid of that. We shouldn't run from it. We should embrace it and understand that it is to be an integral part of our faith so that the rest of our days we can look back at these monumental times where God revealed himself and we remember his presence and it keeps us pressing in when it gets hard and things get dry and the attacks of the enemy get severe and try to bring questions and doubt in our minds. We can always look back and say, I remember. I remember what he did. I remembered his nearness. I remember his grace. How could I turn from him? How could I ever go? Back, how can I return to what I once was when I have tasted and seen the goodness of God in such intense power? How could I ever be unfaithful to Him then? And so, the purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forevermore. So, when we look at the idea here of making straight paths for Him, we are to make straight paths because we really want Him to come to us, and this begins individually. And so, as we begin to do this individually in our own life, saying, God, I want to make a way so you can come to me easy and so I can come to you easy. I want every obstacle removed from my life. I want everything out of my life. But it's not just that I benefit from that. Everybody in my life benefits from me making a straight path for Him to come to me and for me to go to Him. Everybody benefits. But it's not just that. When you start thinking of this in a corporate setting, because God thinks a lot about the corporate body, not just the individual. He thinks a lot about the individual, but we get so uh, so consumed with our individualism in America that we miss the corporate mentality. And that's really huge in the Old Testament, that God was saving his people. But what we look at as each individual begins to purposely in their own heart say, I'm going to tear down these mountains. I'm going to fill in these valleys. I'm going to do everything I can to prepare the way for the Lord to come to me. Guess what? You get all these people coming together, and that same goal is in their heart. That same thing is there, and God begins to see that a people are preparing the way so that he can come to them in a corporate setting. He wants us to make the way that he can come to us individually. We need that. It must be the passion of our life. But we also should be laboring to that end for the benefit of everybody else. Because when we start looking at this, it is not about selfish desires. Because God wants to take it beyond just our, our personal well-being. To We begin to say, God, I want this way prepared for me because there are other people in this church that need me to prepare the way for you to come to us so that they might have that same heart that we might corporately begin to prepare the way as we are all moving towards that same direction. And I don't want to be Achan that brings that sin that divides and ruins. So I want to be part of what God is wanting to do to bring a people together with this one common unifying desire for God to come to His people and for His people to be able to freely go to Him. And so I have dealt with this And spoke of it, and I might have mentioned it when I looked at the purpose of man, but I'll tell you what, it is so important that we learn what it is to enjoy God. And there's not a lot of Christians that really understand what it is to enjoy Him. And there may be so sometimes in your life, a service, a time of prayer, you can remember times where you just said, that was awesome, (laughs) that was wonderful, That that was just so sweet, but it's not the norm in your life. And you know what? God wants to make it more the norm. He wants it to be something where you love being with Him. You just love being with Him. So Monday was my birthday. Jesse and I went to Lexington just to get away. We had no agenda, no plan. So she wanted to figure out, well, we could go here. We could do this, do that, or whatever. And we just kind of wandered around and went to some stores and ate lunch. And and I told her afterwards, says, it was just, I just wanted to be with you. That was it. Just wanted to be with you. Didn't matter what we did. Just wanted to be with you. And shouldn't that there be what our heart is about, God? I just want to be with you. I just want your nearness, God. Whatever it is that's stopping your nearness, God. I just want to be with you. Help me to get to that place that I just love your presence so much. And when you think of it, think you know, think of Enoch for a moment. You know, here's a man that was raptured, the first rapture in the church, and and uh, you know, this man became so so in love with God, so filled with a passion for God, wanted to walk so near to God that finally God says, okay, uh, you got to come up now, you know, wham, I'm out of here, you know. And so what is revival? Just where people start becoming so beautiful, so beautiful to him that that they, everything in their life is wanting to bring joy to his heart. They want to be near him. They want his nearness more and more, not just for themselves, but they want others to begin to taste of this and to know that. And so it just becomes something where God finally says, I've got to come down. My people are yearning for me so much. I've got to show myself to them. I've got to let them see me like they've never saw me before, that they might even go deeper in the pursuit of me. And so Jesus is the prize, not revival. You know I'm saying? Jesus is the prize. We always got to make sure of that. And, you know, it just it gets muddled up, okay? It really does, okay? I've been uh, uh, preached enough and been around enough to see that it can get all mixed up, and we make the prize revival, and if we don't get revival, then we're bummed because we didn't get revival. And the problem is we made revival what we were seeking rather than God himself. And, you know, when you look at Jesus for 30 years... And I don't even know how to put this in words or even to explain it, but here was Almighty God in flesh and blood. And if you could just kind of just look at this, it's all this infinite power wrapped up in human flesh and just wanting to get out, you know, just wanting to get out. And then all of a sudden, the day comes when He is, where the the Son of God is unleashed upon mankind to do them good. And so I was reading today, working on the podcast today, and... and, uh, so in, in Matthew, I was looking at Matthew 12 in relation to Luke 11, where I'm studying right now. And, and uh, it says, Jesus healed everyone in the multitude. Everyone. And I don't know how big that crowd was. I think that one may not have been that big, but there were other ones that were huge. He healed everyone. And you know, all I can imagine... Is that here's Jesus healing the blind and casting out devil? And he has this humongous smile on his face. He is having a tremendous time setting people free. Loving it. Loving it that people are just sitting there. I guarantee you, people sitting there overwhelmed, literally overwhelmed with the presence. Overwhelmed with the presence. And you know, that's what he wants for us now. He's the prize. An absolutely wonderful verse in the Old Testament is uh, Genesis 15:1. The Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, I am your exceeding great reward. Some, some translations absolutely mess that up. And where they go and they say, your reward will be great. Well, I mean, Abram was already a wealthy man. I mean, what, he's going to have more wealth? Does that really matter to Abraham? You know, I mean it was it didn't matter to him. But when God says, I'll be your exceeding great reward, that is awesome. I will be your reward. Seek after me, pursue me, continue on this journey of faith, because I'm your reward. And make it like it tells us in Hebrews that he set his eyes on the celestial city. That's where he was going for because he had seen this God. He was in pursuit. Everything in his life was to get to that celestial city. And guess what? You make a path to that celestial city, you're also making a path for him to come to you. It goes both ways. You see, we can't make the path to get to him and him not get to us. But it has to be that we want him And so when Jesus shows up, there's revival. When Jesus shows up, there's power. When Jesus shows up, there's signs and wonders, and there's miracles. And that's why we need Him. And so when Jesus tangibly shows up, we will have something powerful. And, of course, we understand that Jesus is manifested to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're crying out for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, okay? Same thing. I mean, you know, it's like there is the Trinity... (laughs) They, you can see the individualism of their personalities, and then you see them also one. You can't even separate them, and it's a mystery. That's why Tertullian says, "If you uh, try to figure, if you do away with the Trinity, you will lose your salvation. If you try to figure it out, you will lose your mind." Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> oh, we must prepare the way for Him to come to us. Because it's not just about us. A father and son, and this is a 1904 Welch revival, a father and son, after a busy day at work, were walking into town. When they got into town, the father went to the bar and the son went to the church. And so the son goes to the church. They're in revival. He's in there, they're, they're, they're praying, they're worshiping, they're interceding. People are getting saved, the power of God is just there and Dad's over in the bar drinking and getting drunk. And so the bar started clearing out and so Dad wanting to go home, he goes over and he enters into the vestibule of the church. And all this, oh, the presence of God is just so powerful, so tangible there. and. Uh, But all of a sudden he hears a voice that breaks through it all. Oh God, my dad's a drunk! Oh God, would you save him? And he heard his son weeping and pleading with God for him. And so then his father went up and started looking out, looking in the window of the door into the sanctuary and listening to the worship and the prayer and the repentance that's going on and again He hears his son break out in pleading, Oh, God, please save him. Don't let him go to hell. And then he heard his son just weeping and weeping over his soul. And then the father stepped into the sanctuary. A little bit later, he starts walking down the aisle because his son was all, all the way up front. And once again, the boy breaks out in this agonizing plea for his father's soul and then his father laid his hand on his shoulder and says I'm here son I'm coming you see we make a straight path for that we make a straight path for that so all mankind can see his glory so what is the purpose of revival so we can experience God well I don't want to say no but that's not the principal thing it's it's this benefit. It's this, this overflow of what he's doing that we get to revel in the wonder and the joy of his presence. But what is the purpose of it? That the power and glory of God would be revealed. That's the purpose of it. So when we begin to understand that, we understand in light of this prophecy, we tear down every mountain, not just because we need to get sin out of our life, but because there's a bigger thing out there. And that's the glory of God in a perishing world. Because the world that doesn't even know my name, doesn't know who I am, they don't even realize they need me to get those mountains out. They need me to get those valleys filled in. They need me to straighten out the crooked ways of my life. And they need me to make the rough way smooth. They need me, and they don't even comprehend it. But they need me to prepare the way for God to come to me so that I can go to God, so that as a people we can all begin to do that, so that God might reveal Himself, so He might come to us, that He might, in coming to us, flow through us to them. And they don't even know it. And they don't understand it. And they will never know it unless we become the people that prepare the way for Him so that the glory of God is revealed. First time I went to the Brownsville Revival, I was still pastoring in Wisconsin, and it was a contentious, contentious church, church about 150, just, you know, I don't even want to go into stories of it, but uh, somebody in the church paid for us to go down, and I went to a pastor's conference, and you know all I did the whole time I was there? Wept. That was it. I couldn't do nothing but weep. I just wept and wept and wept and wept and wept. Just the presence of God was so good. I was just so burned out. I was so tired. And just to be in His presence, because that's what I was saved in. You know, when I went in there, it was I felt exactly what I was saved in. And it was awesome. It was so beautiful. It was so wonderful. And there were certain songs that some I, I, I have that, you know, I just, I just remember. Um, and... We sang a song similar to it, Lord Have Mercy, but it's not the same one. But uh, this guy that sung it at that pastor's conference, just absolutely gorgeous voice and just this pleading heart. And I remember when I heard that song, I was bawling. I couldn't get control. I could not get control of myself. So people were preparing the way that this pastor that was exhausted, burned out, could go into the presence of God and get refreshing and get hope in a future. You understand, it's not just about us. If we make it all about us and we've missed it all and our heart is impure and uh, we're not going to see what we're even asking. But when we understand that it's much more, that it's much bigger, that it's for others. And so the purpose is that God would be glorified. And so He is glorified. And let me just say some things here. You know, I mean, this is like, I think this is ser- more serious we understand. God is glorified through our passion of Him. He's not glorified through stoicism. He's not glorified through dead religion. He's not glorified through through worship, as that's really no worship. It's done by a professional band, and you know they sing along with it, and there's no presence there. There's nothing there. He is glorified by our passion for him, our passion in worship, our passion in prayer. So what do we do? We make ourselves like the persistent, uh, you know, this, the 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 persistent uh, man that went and begged for bread. And we allow ourselves to be shameless in our worship. I'm not talking about trying to be weird and bizarre and distracting from everybody else. But you, when we come to worship, we come for an audience of one. I don't come to hear from you. I come to hear from him. I come to be at his feet, to sit at his feet, and to, do, to adore him. That's what I want. I just want Jesus. I just want his nearness. And I want it more and more because I've tasted it. I know what it is for those arms that wrap around you. He is glorified through our seeking after Him. He's glorified in it. He's not glorified through those who do not seek and who make Him an addition to their life. He is glorified when He is what we are seeking. He is the definer of our life. So we are passionately pursuing Him because that's what we want. Because we see our desperate need of Him. But we also see our desperate need of Him so that He can do something through us for the sake of others. For the sake of a perishing world that, that the value of my life is that God is glorified through me. That I let His name be be spread because I am striving to be who He's created me to be. God is glorified through persevering prayer, through prayer that grabs hold, grabs hold of the promises and won't let go. That's why in these times of prayer, I've really tried to make everything so narrow to teach a principle. And you know, it was just interesting. I had a, a pastor, an inner city pastor from uh, Phoenix just called me yesterday. And so we talked for a, uh, a while and, and uh, he was just talking about, says, you know, I'm trying to get my congregation to learn how to pray through. And they don't know how to do it. And so I tell them one thing, we're only praying for one thing. And then You ask them to do that, next thing you know, this person's going that way, this person's going that way, and they have no idea. They don't know what it is to pray through. They don't have a concept of something gripping their heart, compelling them, and not letting go of it. Well, what ultimately should it be? Souls. It should be the cry of our heart, souls. It should be the cry of our heart for revival to come, that souls might come in in a greater way. It should become something that is burning inside of us. Persevering prayer, spiritual warfare, where we understand what we're about. Because what I, I wrote this in my, my uh, book, Run the Heavens, but I mentioned what I called ping-pong prayer. Where always we bounce everywhere. Bounce here, bounce there, bounce there, bounce all over the place. And guess what? We get nothing done. Because we just bounce. You, know, you spend five seconds on one issue, and then you're on another issue. And so, you know, I, I want to be careful here, but that means there's nothing burning in your heart. Think of the times you've gone through trials and you're consumed with your trial, what is your prayer? Right? One thing, right? One thing. you're consumed with that need, you're consumed with that problem, you're consumed with that issue. The moment you get away from the problem that it's all ping-pong, prayer all over the place because nothing burns inside of you. Nothing is compelling you. And so God wants to get a hold of our hearts, have something to begin to burn in us, that our prayers become alive. That they become prayers with direction where we grab hold of the horns of the altar and say, I will not let go until you answer. And when we make prayer about everything and anything, guess what? We're not persevering through. We'll never persevere through. We haven't even grabbed hold of the horns of the altar because we're desperate. You understand? I'm just trying to be honest here. We glorify God through persevering prayer. When faith rises up and faces, I must have an answer, God. I will not give you rest. Be it a day, a month, a year, or a hundred years. I'm not going to live that long. Thank you, Jesus. He's glorified through our pursuit of holiness. Passionate pursuit of holiness. He's glorified through good marriages. Right? He's glorified through good marriages. So you get the mountains out of your marriage. You get to fill in the valleys of your marriage. You get the crooked ways out of your marriage. You get the rough ways out of your marriage. Why? So God is glorified through it. Because he's glorified through good marriages. He's glorified when the husband and wife love each other and love being with each other. And then people look at that and they see it. So my daughter, 45 years old, never been married, never lived with a guy. So she's walking with Jesus and so she just got engaged. Just got engaged. Now, from her own family, so she's not our blood. She's a foster child that we've had for years and years. Her family's a mess. His family's a mess. But you know what she said? She told this guy, my mom and dad, they know how to do it. The only ones that she really knows. The only ones that she really knows that have a good marriage. They know it. I mean, she knows it, and, you know, they under, she understands. I wish she asked for more advice, but <laughs> that's a problem of, uh, of youth, even at 45, that they think they know everything. God is glorified through reaching the lost and discipling the saved. One of the things I was reading today was just about on, on the Welch Revival was on, on how you could go to the individual churches and the backsliding rate, At some would be almost virtually none and others would be much higher and because it's a recent enough revival they could literally go and look at the discipleship and where the discipleship was was weak you had a lot of backsliding. Where the discipleship was well you had much keeping. And uh, it's very interesting because revival only does what revival is sent to do. That's to save and awaken. Okay? Revival was not given to disciple. The church is the disciple. That's our response. When they come in, we have this, this problem of discipling them. And so just imagine on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 saved. You want to talk about some real discipling nightmares. What good nightmares, though, right? But those are some of the difficulties and, and, uh, and that. But that's, may God give us such a problem, huh? <laughs> oh, God is glorified through passionate worship. He's glorified through passionate worship, and he's glorified through passionate preaching. You know, the way I preach is the way I want to be preached to. I'll just be honest. I mean, I know there's some guys out there that they love Jesus and you know, you listen to them and they'll put you to sleep. But you know, just just give me somebody with the fire. Give me somebody that burns inside. Give me somebody that that has something to say and they can't say it quietly. <laughs> you know, just I don't I'm not loud because that's the anointing per se. I'm loud because I'm excited. And you know, I've gone to God and I've tried I've pled with him. God help me to get quieter. But at the same time, I'm saying, don't let the passion, I don't want to lose the passion, God, and I can't do it, you know, I just can't do it. So, you know, some people like it, some people don't. But you know what, those who have ears to hear, hear. God is glorified through unity in the church. You know what that means in the church? We got to tear down every mountain, we got to fill in every valley. This has to be on a corporate basis, all right? so that we come to the place that there's unity, that we don't have these things that would cause division. Now, are there things we don't see eye to eye on? Absolutely. Unity does not mean in this world that we're going to believe like little robots everything identical, but it does mean over what is important we will be unified in. We will have one heart, one soul, one desire. And uh, that becomes very important. You know, you have Psalms, uh, what's that, 133 or 31? 33, I think it is. 33, yeah, so it's on, uh, you know, the unity of the saints. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not going to take time to go through it, but it's powerful, powerful, small, short little psalm, like five verses or something, And, and there's anointing in the unity. There is. Now you know something that's good about the church, really good? You're hard to get out of here, right? Church is over. You're hard to get out. Why? Because you like each other. That's good, right? I mean, I'll tell you what, i preached in hundreds and hundreds of churches, and you're done preaching, they're gone. The place is empty, and I'm going, okay, what's going on here? You know, there's something not healthy there. Something not healthy. I mean, the mass exit out of the doors, so they got other things they want to do, you know, or beat the Baptist to the restaurant or whatever. I don't know. God is glorified through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I am Pentecostal. I'll be Pentecostal to my dying day. I will not give it up. I believe in it 100%. I believe it very, very sound Bible. And I am so glad that on the second day of my salvation, I was baptized in the Holy Ghost. And I can't imagine what it would be not to have it. He's glorified in it. But he's also glorified in signs and wonders. He's glorified in the power of God. And that's what we need. That's what the church in America needs. (coughs) Excuse me. We need Pentecostal power that will begin to touch a dying world. And so, you know, you look at Acts chapters 3 and 4, and, you know, I I don't know why I didn't see it, you know. I don't know why I didn't see it in the past, but there I'm studying it, and I realize chapter 3 and 4 is one event. It's one event. For some reason, I kind of put chapter 3 and chapter 4 separate, but they're not. It's one event. You know, what do they do? Peter and John come up to a lame man at the gate, beautiful, and he says, we don't have gold or silver, we don't have money, but we got power. Rise and walk in the name of Jesus, right? Well, that opened the door for him to preach. Because he preached, then you have the, the, uh, the, uh, the chief priests and the temple guard and, uh, and uh, some other religious Jews there that were all out of joint out of it. I mean, they were just enraged. So they went and arrested Peter and John. But because it was late, they put him in jail for the night. And in the morning, they bring him out. And then Peter, is a, a second time, to preach this time to the Sanhedrin Council and the religious leaders that were there. But because it was so taken as a, as a miracle from God that the religious people were afraid of the crowd. And they let them, they let them go as a result. Alright, so they were just afraid. So they didn't persecute him, they didn't beat him. You know, they tried to manipulate him. And he says, yeah, we're gonna obey God rather than man. He didn't, that was an arrogance. That was just stating the reality. I've got a higher calling. I've got to obey. And uh, so they have a prayer meeting, okay? So, uh, so what do you think would be in the prayer meeting? All right, so what happens if we had our first bout of persecution around here? What would we do? Would we get together and start moaning and groaning, complaining, Oh, God, we just want a happy life. And why are we struggling now? Why do people not like us? What would we do? Well, read the prayer in Acts chapter 4, and I'm just going to read a little portion of it. I love it. So here they are praying. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Great prayer meeting. Right? Great prayer meeting. No fear, no intimidation, not pride. Understand, that wasn't pride. This was people saying, we have a calling and we're going to be faithful to the calling. And Jesus trained us for all this time. And now we're going to take the truth of what that is. And we're going to take it into a perishing world. We will not be silent. So God, here's what we're asking. We'll face the persecution. We'll deal with all that comes against us. We'll deal with the devils that come against us. But God, we want power. We want signs and wonders so that the lost are saved. Not so they would become famous. Understand, they weren't asking that. They were asking that God would be glorified through it. Should that not be the kind of prayers that we pray? Isn't it that God wants to use average old individuals that would believe? That's all Stephen was. He was a a layman, a deacon at that time, not what deacons are today. Philip is using revival in in Samaria. Signs and wonders, miracles. Miracles. Well, he's, he, he goes to the Ethiopian, ministers to the Ethiopians, leaves revival to go to this Ethiopian eunuch, and then you have another rapture take place. Not up in the heaven, but he goes from there, shoom, to a whole other place. That had to be one crazy experience. <laughs> I can't imagine what he'd talk about. You know, just, man, it was like crazy. he just, wham, and just, where am I now? <laughs> yeah, God does some awesome things. So like I said about the Brownsville revival, there was uh, all these intercessors way before John Kilpatrick ever passed the place, crying out that God would bring revival to Pensacola, Florida. And so then it came into John Kilpatrick's heart to help the church in focus, okay? So there's that thing of focus again. So what he did is he got 12 banners, and he put the banners around the church, and he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to take at least five minutes at each banner, and if you pray at all 12 banners, you'll have prayed for an hour, and so what they did is they put them all around, and you know, sanctuary huge, uh, seated a couple thousand people, and so they had the banners put around, and, and they would go around and pray at them, and sometimes you see people just stuck at one, who just couldn't leave for whatever reason, whatever gripped their heart, and, and that, and um, you know their prayer meetings were awesome. I mean, the friends of God was there. The roar of the prayer was just awesome. You know, it was was tremendous. And so here here are their ba- their banners. Uh, and I'm just saying this not because you get banners, because you know what happened. The church just tried to buy their ba- get banners, do the same thing, and it didn't work. All right. So you got to prepare. It's all the preparing. If you there's no prepare, you just don't put up banners if you haven't prepared. What good are the banners? You know, you got to prepare the way. You got to get the mountains tore down. You got to fill in the valleys and so on. So the first one was spiritual warfare, then revival, souls, family and homes, the, the country, the national leaders and armed forces, then healings for signs and wonders, for pastors, for the Bible schools, for, and children's schools, for ministries, for Jerusalem and Israel, for peace there, for children, and then catastrophic events. So they had each of those banners there. And it was just trying to bring focus, you understand, because we wander so bad. We do. We wander in prayer. We don't have, we, we just don't comprehend what it is to get, let something grip us. So Kilpatrick was trying to deal with the wanderings of the hearts of the people, and so they had the banner. So you stand in front of the one, that one banner, okay, this is what I'm praying for. And, and uh, um, so it, it brought some focus. It's however it really works. That's what God did for the Browns Revival. It doesn't mean that he'll ever do that again. That's what he did there. And that was good. But what does he want to do here? Let me just share a couple of more stories on the 1904 Welsh Revival, and then I'll close. A father who had, through drink, fallen into an early and dishonored grave, left his widow, uh, leaving his widow and children in want of bread, so he died, It was one of his children, raggedly clad, that left every heart in one prayer meeting aching, yet overjoyed. As his childish prayer, he used phrases that must, that was just very difficult to translate from Welsh into English. But this is basically what the young boy prayed Dear Jesus, I thank thee for coming here as a poor. So very poor man, perhaps even as poor as I am. Thou couldst have chosen the finest palace in the world to be born in, but thou wouldst been too high for me then. But I know how to come to a manger. I wish I had been living when thou wert here. Everybody will want to cast their crown at thy feet in heaven, but I should like to have laid my crown at thy feet. When they were stained with blood, from the road bleeding and wounded. What a prayer from a little child. There was this famous preacher, William Williams of Wern. And he was preaching in Wales roughly 12 months before the revival broke out. And he, without knowing it, really gave a prophetic kind of word. And so in his preaching he says, What if you were to consent to have him save the whole of this parish? And a parish would be, you know, the the area of whatever city it might be or a village. What if you were to consent to have him save the whole parish? Ah, but how can we have him? Well, hold prayer meetings through the whole parish. Go from house to house, every house that will open its door. Make it the burden of every prayer that God would come here to save. See, singleness, one thing, that you would come to save. Not about this and that and everything else. One thing, burning. That's what he says. Get this passion inside of you. If God has not come, by the time that you have gone through the parish once, go through it again. But if you are in earnest in your prayers, you shall not go through half the parish before God has come to you. The seed was sown, but apparently took no root. Nothing was done, save one unlikely, unsaved woman. Among those attracted to hear the famous preacher was a woman, old, lonely, irreligious. She was accustomed to... In her cottage, she used a light of rush candle. That's what poor people would use. But for the prayer meeting, she felt that nothing poorer than a wax candle would do. Next morning, she bought two to be ready in time for them to come to her. But the weary months passed, and no prayer meeting called at her lowly door. She went at last to the shop where she had purchased the two candles and asked the man, when is the prayer meeting coming to my house? You understand, she's not even a saved woman. The prayer meeting, which Mr. Williams of Wern said would go from house to house. Well, the shopkeeper felt rebuked and didn't even know how to answer, so he offhandedly says, oh, well, they care care very little of what anybody says. Well, indeed, I bought two candles nearly a year ago and have come to bed many a time in the dark, leaving them unburnt, lest the meeting should come and find me without a candle. A year waiting for them to come. Well, this struck the man so powerfully he went and told the church. And that prayer meeting started, and it wasn't much later before the Welsh Revival broke out. You see, there's something about that. There's something about it when the church starts praying, when they start understanding the necessity of it.